Delegation really comes from something that you should be doing that you bestow on somebody else to get done for you. And facilitation is really looking at a much broader landscape and taking the time to really understand what it is that people do well and then how connecting the dots between two folks whose paths normally wouldn't cross and how they bring value when united together on a particular project. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini. I'll be your host today and every Tuesday moving forward. Today, I'm especially excited because I have my cousin as a guest, James Orsini. James is the president of the Sasha Group, which is a VaynerX company. Working alongside Gary Vaynerchuk, its CEO and serial entrepreneur, James leads the Sasha Group to help small business reach explosive growth potential. The Sasha Group provides educational consulting and marketing services for companies from $1 million to $200 million in revenue. James previously held key high-level positions for VaynerMedia, including Chief Operating Officer and Chief Integration Officer. Before coming to VaynerMedia, James held prior positions as Chief Executive Officer and member of the Board of Directors of Site2Mobile. He has more than 35 years of experience and operations experience across a broad range of marketing and communication disciplines. James was the Executive Vice President and Director of Finance and Operations for Saatchi & Saatchi in New York, where he worked closely with the CEO to provide strategic and day-to-day direction for all financial and operational functions. His impressive resume continues. Prior to joining Saatchi & Saatchi, James held key leadership positions at Interbrand North America, KPMG, and Goldman Sachs. James graduated magnum cum laude from Seton Hall University in New Jersey with a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. He received the university's presidential academic scholarship and still serves the university today. He is a licensed New York State certified public accountant. On a personal level, James is a board member of Renovation House of New Jersey, New York, a residential substance abuse rehabilitation program. He served as a member of the Board of Regents for Seton Hall University. But perhaps his best accomplishment was winning the third and fourth grade Little League Championship (laughs) with his cousin, yours truly. What you agree that's your highest accomplishment of life, James? Absolutely. I I take every occasion to mention it where they allow me to do so. Yeah, I I think you and I were the two worst players on the team. You played center field. I was a second baseman. But somehow, I think both of us in the championship went three for three, as I still tell my kids. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I gave birth to an athlete, so I make it all level off now. That's right. After your stellar career in third grade, your son went on to play college baseball. So it it must have been uh, Joanne's genes, I guess. Absolutely. Joanne, who we met when she uh, tripped and I picked her up. So uh, we we do not have any kind of finesse when it comes to sports. All kidding aside, your career has been an incredible story of one success after another. And I really enjoyed watching your accomplishments pile up. As I read your bio and the positions that you've had, I thought, gee, anybody would be happy just to have one of those positions. But each 
career defining step that you made. You just took on more and more and had more and more success. And I think that's incredible. So I just want to say, I personally enjoyed watching your career just get better and better. Yes, it was uh, unplanned, but, uh, but it unfolded really uh, in, a, in a nice way. So the topic of this podcast is always difficult conversations. And particularly, we're going to talk about difficult conversations in leadership. You've held so many positions in leadership. But before we get into that, I just want the audience to know the James Orsini that I know. So tell us about James Orsini. How would you describe yourself? What drives you? And what's your leadership philosophy? Well, I'm a family man. I love every aspect of my family. I love to spend as much time as I can with them. I actually see business as my hobby. <laughs> which most people find strange and unusual. So it wouldn't be crazy for me to be on a vacation and still reading the Wall Street Journal or uh, you know a business book in hand. So that's why my passion has actually become my profession. And I don't feel like I really work. I just <laughs> show up and do what it is that I like to do. So, you know, my leadership style is one of servant leadership. You know, I actually serve others to get the best out of them. I am a facilitator rather than a delegator. So uh, that means you got to really take the time to understand what it is that people do well and then how your needs plug into their talents. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up. I read a piece that you actually wrote, I think in 2017, right? Don't delegate, facilitate. So just expand upon that because you just mentioned it a little bit. What did you mean by that? Yeah, you know, delegation really comes from something that you should be doing that you bestow on somebody else to get done for you. And facilitation is really looking at a much broader landscape and taking the time to really understand what it is that people do well, and then how connecting the dots between two folks whose paths normally wouldn't cross, and how they bring value when united together on a particular project. I kind of see things from 30,000 feet, so things look small to me. As a result of that, if you think about it, right, when you're up in an airplane and you see these little puddles, you realize there's somebody's swimming pool, but you're at 30,000 feet, so they don't look grand in any way, shape, or form. And that's the way I see problems. I just don't see them big. I have a different vantage point, and I help people navigate through them. That's great. So you had some great positions. And then tell us the story, because you know, you can't get through an interview without somebody asking you about Gary Vee, right? So he's just bigger <laughs> than life. And- and you work Absolutely. with, and I have a couple of questions about Gary Vee, but how did you end up at VaynerMedia, if you could tell us the story, and then tell us how the soccer group started and why you started that. So it was interesting. I went to a Seton Hall University basketball game. I was invited by another board member at the time, and he brought his son, and his son brought a friend, and that friend was A.J. Vaynerchuk, uh, Gary's younger brother. At the time, I was chief operating officer at Saatchi and Saatchi, and uh, you know, we got to talking and, and I just invited him down to Saatchi to see what it was like when he gets big. And he took me up on the offer. But more importantly, he knew enough to stay in touch with me and use me as a mentor. You know, oftentimes asking, have you ever done this? You know, somebody who does that, how would you handle this? So we kind of stood in touch over the years. And I left Saatchi. I went out to become the CEO of Acido Mobile. And then I stood there three and a half years. I had a three-year employment contract. I stood three and a half years. And now I was leaving to come back into big advertising. So I just called AJ to just say, hey, man, I'm going to see you again. You know, I'm going to be back in big advertising. And he's like, uh, you know, did you ever meet my brother, Gary? And I said, no. And he said, did you ever hear of him? And I said, not really. And he's like, all right, well, do a quick Google search. It's not going to be hard to find. And 
I spent some time with him, not long, maybe 15 minutes. I got a call back from AJ and said, listen, he likes you. He wants to have dinner with you. You know, don't take that too lightly. His time's pretty valuable. And we had dinner and he said, uh, James, I want to create a $500 million independent, integrated international communications company. Can you help me do it? And um, I said, yeah, I actually think I can. So he's like, all right, well, don't take one of those other jobs. You've already had that. Step out on a cloud and do this with me. And I did. And, you know, he has certainly been successful before, since, and uh, continues to be. And I like to think I played a small role in helping a piece of his vision come to life. And that's an important point. You mentioned in one of your interviews that Gary asked you one simple question. He said, <laughs> what is it that you do? Tell yeah. us about that. And yeah, he said, can you describe what you do in one sentence? And I said, yeah, I take dreams and visions and put them into action plans. And he's like, oh, you're hired. He said, I got a lot of dreams and visions. <laughs> So that's good. Well, everybody needs someone who sees the big picture and then somebody who facilitates. So I think that's certainly you. It sounds like it's a perfect match. Yeah, yeah, it has been. We've had an absolute blast and I've had several positions in his Vaynerx world in the newest of them right now. So let's start moving towards difficult conversations. And I asked Claude Silver, the chief heart officer of VaynerMedia, the same question I'm going to ask you of all the years you've been in leadership. And all the types of conversations that you've had with board members, CEOs, workers, employees, what do you think is the most difficult conversation that you have had and that you continue to have to have that you really felt that you needed to master? Well, look, so many people, unfortunately, define who they are by their work. It's a sad definition, but it is factual. And removing someone's work while not removing their soul has always been a difficult situation for me. And as you read from that bio, I have had a lot of senior roles. With those senior roles come senior responsibilities, many of which was unfortunate in all different times, right? Removing people who were simply out of position. And I've had to do that around the world. I've done that with bodyguards. I've done that with translators. I've done that in different cultures. and. It's always difficult when you're removing the people who's used to removing the people, right? (laughs) So I'm talking about CEOs, founders, businesses that I bought and then remove leaders, really, really difficult situations. And, you know, you do it because you know the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and what you're trying to accomplish. Any advice that you have to the young executive out there who needs to remove somebody or separate? We had Dr. Larry Barton on a few weeks ago. Dr. Barton is the world's leading expert on workplace violence. Mm -hmm. He has a brand new book that talks about the way you separate someone from employment can really predict whether they're going to come back and shoot the place up or, you know, I mean, those are rare instances, but they do happen. So what advice do you have that uh, for that manager who's got to remove somebody that you could help them do it in the kindest and most compassionate manner? Well, one, it shouldn't be a surprise. Mm -hmm. So make sure you're taking the time to properly communicate, to evaluate over a period of time, to, you know, have an ongoing dialogue. Uh, I believe Claude calls it radical candor, you know. So by the time you get to that closed door office, nobody should be sitting on the other end of that desk thinking that it was a surprise. Two, you know, be as fair and reasonable as you possibly can. This is not the time, you know, at that moment to try and save an extra week's salary or pay or whatever, you know, try and be as fair as you possibly can within the policies of your company and as reasonable as you can in 
you know, not making it a choking situation. You know, as a global CFO, I was the guy that used to have to remove global CEOs. The CEO didn't do it. He'd put me on a plane and say, you know, you go to Mexico City or you're going to Tokyo. And, you know, so uh, that was always hard and difficult. And they kind of knew when I was flying in this sort of Grim Reaper type of analogy. I've removed people whose companies I bought. We then absorbed the company and there was no need for the founder anymore. That was difficult. But, you know, I've done it in such a way in one particular example where I called years later in a different company and I said, listen, I know I'm not the voice you want to hear on the other end of the phone, but I have the right opportunity for you now. I'm in a different place and I know what it is that you do well. And if you're willing to trust me, come and join me here in this new role. You know, I made lifelong friends that way, obviously, when you do something like that. In the Cedo Mobile situation, I was brought on as the CEO. The founder was moved to a chairman role. We worked for a couple of years together. And then the board told me, listen, you have to remove him. <laughs> it was his wow. Yeah, it was really, really, really difficult. Two grown men crying on each side of the phone. You know, <laughs> if you think about it, it was his baby, birthed that company. Now he was removed from it. So that is a rough really conversation. Hard. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting that your first thing you said was they should already know it's coming. And I've been training doctors, as you know, how to break bad news, how to give tragic news. You have cancer, your baby is passing away, your child's going to have neurological deficits. And what I teach, and I use this acronym called PROGRAM, P-R-O-G-R-A-M, and the G is for gradual. And it's the number one rule of breaking bad news in healthcare and business. There's so many parallels. That's why I'm having you on also. But there's so many parallels that when someone hears the bad news that their husband just died in the emergency room, et cetera, I always tell the doctors, the family members should already know it's coming. So you want to plead your case first. And this is what happened. The, the heart attack was worse than we thought it was. By the time he got to the emergency room, his heart was very low. His blood pressure was low. We had to give him adrenaline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is neuroscience based. This allows people to brace themselves for that news that's coming. In your case, you're talking about over a period of time where you're giving them feedback, et cetera. But it's interesting of the parallels. That was the first thing you said. And that's the number one rule in medicine, too. Yeah, no surprises. I mean, you know, by the time some of this uh, difficult and hard conversation is coming, it's horrific when it's cold water in the face. You know, it's never easy, but it's a little more acceptable when this is the third time you're talking about this particular topic and this is going to be the last time. And in a small way, they appreciate that you took the time, that you gave them the chance, and that you did it in a compassionate manner. And so the, whether you're separating someone from appointment or you're doing it in medicine, it's really, really the same thing. There's so many parallels. And as you know, I'm a big student of communication. I know you very well. We've known each other since, since we were children. I know you have a very even temperament. Mm-hmm. And in medicine, I had a mentor when I was very young training I think I was doing neonatology fellowship. And he told me this thing. He said, the higher you are up on the ladder, the softer you speak. Yeah. And that was probably the best advice that I ever got. And I routinely get thrown into situations where there's a child or a baby who has no heart rate and the team who's very, very good. And they're very well trained. They're trying to resuscitate. And then they call me and I get in there. And although they're very good, there's panic in the air. There's And, and I've seen physicians start barking. You see it on TV, right? They start barking yeah. orders. Right, right. That, that doesn't happen. That's not yeah. real. And I learned very early on from this mentor that 
when everybody is screaming and yelling and get this and grab the auction and do that. And I walk in and I just say, okay, what do we have here? What's going on? The level of tension in the room goes down. So you mentioned how your even temperament helps. Can you expand upon that just again to draw another parallel? You know, that's been both a blessing and a curse for me because for some high strung people, it was like, listen, James, you're not sensing the urgency that I'm trying to relay to you. And I said, I am sensing the urgency. But if we're all running around like our hair's on fire, you know, nobody's going to see through it. I understand how important it is, right? I read a great book called The Six Fundamentals of Success by Stuart Levine, who was the ex-CEO of Dale Carnegie. If you know anything about Dale mm-hmm. Carnegie in business, it's they train CEOs. And it was about knowing what's on your boss's dashboard. So meaning like, know what's important to your boss and make sure that's important to you. You know, for a lot of what it was that I did with Gary in the earlier years, I was more like a decoder ring to him because, you know, the people around him were used to Gary barks and out in order and they run a hundred miles an hour and sometimes they (laughs) smash into a wall. And I was like, listen, I heard what he said. I think this is what he means. You can go in a direction like this. You know, let's put some, we didn't necessarily call it process. We called it scalable organization because Mm -hmm. when you're in hyper growth mode, like most of his companies are, you know, process by nature sounds lethargic and slow. So we were just trying to organize enough to be able to scale. And a lot of times, you know, it gets tense in those rooms. He's just such a passionate individual that it comes out with a sense of urgency. And I just have a way of seeing the dots in the room and understanding how they connect and come together. So I'm much better in a crisis situation Mm -hmm. than I am. uh, It's so funny because anytime I get very emotional in happy situations. You want me as your pallbearer, you know, because I'm going to be no problem. But like to give a toast at your wedding, I'm crying. So, <laughs> you know, that's familial. And in fact, I just interviewed, I have a niece that she's going to be on in a couple of weeks, probably before this even airs. She was a premature baby, survived that. Then she, when she was 16 years old, she got lymphoma, went through chemotherapy. She survived that. And now she's a pediatric oncology nurse and she takes care of kids with cancer. So I'm so proud of her. And I thought she was going to be perfect. So I had her on. She was really a great interview. And during that interview or the introduction to my niece's interview, I said in that introduction that please forgive me because I think it's familial that I might cry uh, (laughs) out out of pride and you're going to hear my voice quiver. (laughs) <laughs> and I, my father's the same way. I think your father was the same yeah, way. Sadness, stone cold. But when their yeah. kids graduating high school, they're bawling their eyes out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's the way it is. So I don't know if this is an Orsini thing or an Italian <laughs> thing or what, but we're, we're all the same. So <laughs> let's move on. So you once said, we're talking about more difficult conversations. And sometimes you have to have difficult conversations with clients, right? In the Sasha group, And I want you to tell us a little bit about that. You're really into mentoring and consulting and people are coming to you to help. But you once said a big idea is not a business. Hope is not a strategy. Expand upon that. And I would think that sometimes you have to have those difficult conversations with clients of the Sasha group or people that come to the Sasha group. Yeah. And that's what was interesting when Gary pivoted and said, hey, you ready to start something new? And I said, yeah, what'd you have in mind? He said, well, I'm on the cover of Entrepreneur Magazine. I got 14 million followers and we built a company to serve its Fortune 500. I don't have a company for these smaller and medium-sized businesses. 
So he said, I, I want to start a new company. I want to name it after my dad for legacy purposes. His dad was a Belarus Russian immigrant who came to the United States, worked his way up, bought his own liquor store. And uh, you know the story there, Gary helped out with that and you know helped it grow from whatever it was, 3 million in sales to 60 million in sales. So servicing these small businesses, and it's why we kind of position ourselves more like a consultancy on the front end and an advertising agency on the back end. You know, Fortune 500, has uh, brand managers from Wharton MBAs and, you know, understanding the real side of marketing. And the folks that I serve are founders and owners, entrepreneurs, you know, who had a passion for something and saw an opportunity, could have been a family owned business that they're now taking to another level, you know, could have been uh, something that they saw in the marketplace and saw a way to pivot and maybe birth something new. And they need guidance, not only marketing guidance, but business guidance. I was fortunate this week to, to be included in a campaign uh, uh, magazine's 40 over 40. Uh, I saw that. Congratulations. Yeah, That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> it celebrates wisdom and experience, really, if you think about it. There's no substitute for that. And in this space, I happen to have that. So there are difficult conversations there. Look, I know you're birthed in this business and you, and you love it, but the pivot needs to be here. Or... I know this guy has been alongside of you for umpteen years, but he's not doing you any favors in the role that he's in. He's simply not a chief operating officer or he's not financially savvy. So there are difficult conversations with people who, you know, are passionate about what it is that they birth in a business, but didn't necessarily have a plan. I spent a lot of time giving them outlines to a business plan. Here's how your idea becomes a business. Mm-hmm. You know, remember the four pillars that Gary gave me. I want to be integrated, international, independent communications company. Those four pillars helped guide the decisions that we were making. They did two things. One, they enabled us to hit the gas in directions that aligned with that. But more importantly, they enabled me to push back and challenge him when it didn't align. Why are we doing this? I, I don't understand how, how this fits. Remember the pillars that you gave me? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and Gary, by his own admission, says that he's a moldable dictator, right? So he's <laughs> definitely like a dictator, but he's a moldable dictator, meaning that you could have a conversation with him and, you know, he's going to make the ultimate decision as he should, but uh, you can reason with him to understand why things should be the way they are. Yeah. So you have to approach that conversation with that CEO, because as you said, it's his baby, it's her baby. You need to tell them, I have to train a bunch of physicians sometimes who are referred to me from their hospitals saying, this, this guy's a great surgeon. He's a great obstetrician. We're getting so many complaints about his bedside manner. His, we call them HCAP scores or patient satisfaction scores are really low. And it's my job to coach them. Sometimes I put them through improvisational role-playing with actors. I'm getting someone already who's got an attitude like he or she does not want to be there. They've been sent by daddy down there to get trained. And I can say it because I'm a physician. I mean, doctors have egos mm-hmm. and I'm sure CEOs have egos. And I've learned through my coaching that you do have to spend a lot of time stroking that ego. And as they say, lead the horse to water. And when I teach conflict resolution, you kind of steer them until they go, you know what, James? I think we should do it this way. And that's exactly what you wanted them to do. Right. Is that a problem with CEOs too? It would just kind of stroke in the ego a little bit. Well, you know, the interesting thing 
when I was going to Cito Mobile to become a CEO, you know, I had never been a CEO. I was never uh, been in a publicly traded company. And uh, at the time, I didn't know anything about technology. And uh, I resigned from Saatchi and the then global CEO, Kevin Roberts, said to me, so you're going to be the CEO of a small publicly traded company? He said three things. He said, one, lonely job. He said, two, hard job, because what gets to your desk is the stuff that nobody else could figure out. And he said, three, where is it trading now? And I said, well, it's trading on the bulletin board. We're going to bring it up to NASDAQ. And he said, hmm, you're going to be asked to compromise your morals and integrity on a daily basis. You know, and I shook his hand. It sounded like a Hallmark card. And six months later, I went back and I said, wow, those words were so deafening because it is exactly what I was feeling. So the interesting part is in any room, there are so few people who Even you know, I'm sure, as publicly traded company CEOs, I'm honored to have held that title. I know what I don't want to be ever again as a publicly traded CEO. But once you have the badge, you have the badge. Mm -hmm. So while Gary has 900 people in VaynerX, I don't know anybody other than me who's been a publicly traded company CEO. So there are decisions that he makes that you know, in the earlier times, I was able to just send them a text and say, I know how difficult that is. You handled it eloquently. I've been in that situation, you know, well done. And that's what happens with some of these CEOs. Nobody wants to come in, you know, and then they're like, James, you know, what, what do you know about retail furniture? What do you know about insurance? What do you know about a law firm? And I said, absolutely nothing. I said, but I will never know as much as you know about your practice, but you'll never know as much as I know about the people who are purchasing your services. Now, that's where the two of us come together, right? So that's what I have. And I don't profess to know what it is that you have, but what you have becomes better when you mix it with what I have. It's all about credibility. I have the same issue when I'm coaching physicians or when I'm doing workshops in big hospitals about improving patient experience. We do exercises about how you sit down when you speak to a patient, how to be a genuine person, et cetera. Many of the other companies that do what I do, they're taught by masters in education. Maybe they're taught by a nurse. And as a physician, I know this to be true. So even when I start my workshops, they're sitting in the back with their arms crossed going, I don't really want to be here. But once I say to them, listen, I work in the world's largest neonatal intensive care unit. We've adopted these practices our patient experience scores have gone up and I still go home at four or five o'clock, then all of a sudden everybody sits up a little bit straighter. So mm-hmm. what you're alluding to is it's all about the credibility. And I think that's really important, but you still have to be careful with egos, right? You still have to. Oh, you, you, you definitely yeah. have to play with egos and it can get to your head. I mean, just you reading that bio, you know, I was kind of cringing and looking around and yeah, I couldn't even look at you reading it. I mean, it, <laughs> if not done properly, it'll go to your head, you know, and now, Add a 40 over 40 accolade somewhere in the bottom of that. My wife does a good job of helping ground. (laughs) (laughs) I always say Einstein's wife thought he was an idiot. (laughs) Right. But that's exactly right. I know you well. You're very grounded. You're genuine. People wouldn't even know you do what you do because you just love to laugh. You enjoy life. And so I think that really goes a long way. Tomorrow, I'm going to be interviewing Stephen Covey, the Speed of Trust author. And he talks about building trust and building loyalty. The best bosses I've ever had in my life, I walked through fire for them. And Mm -hmm. uh, if you said something poorly about them, I'd be very angry at you no matter what. And some bosses I'm not happy with. 
Yeah, that's really, really important. You know, when I left Cedar Mobile, I read a book called Consigliere, Ruling from the Shadows, and it was about being a great number two. When I read that book, I'm like, listen, that's who I am. I don't need to be the guy on the stage. I don't need to be the number one. God, I think I would have been a better CEO if I had a number two like me behind me. You know, (laughs) most people have a number two who's trying to shoot them to be number one. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, you know, what the realities of the business world are. But I think that's kind of where even when, and this this is a funny one, Gary's like, all right, so you're going to be the CEO of the Sasha Group. I said, "Uh, you know what? I think I'll be the president. I said, you should be the CEO. It's, you know, you should be the CEO of Vaynermedia. You should be the CEO of the Sasha Group. And he's like, Wow, I never really had somebody give back a title, <laughs> you know, but it was, that's kind of what it was. I knew what I was going to be doing. I didn't really need any bigger title than the one that I had to do what it is that I knew I could do. And there's a lot of trust there. You know, there's a lot of trust there. This thing has his father's name on it. You know, he doesn't want to screw it up in any way, shape or form. He's involved in the vision. And then I set the strategy for how to execute the vision. And the trust has to go also downward. So there's so many managers and leaders and bosses that I've had Mm -hmm. where I know that the way that they stay up top, they believe the way to stay up top is to keep everybody down. And the Mm -hmm. best bosses I've had were ones that, you know, would hire Anthony Orsini and then say, when I have another accomplishment, I'm going to take the credit because I hired him. And there's a big difference. And as the audience knows, my daughter, Summer, she also works for VaynerMedia. We had the episode with Claude on that atmosphere that Gary has started and that you're able to do that. People want to work there, right? I mean, and how do you build that trust and loyalty for with the people that work for you? Well, the interesting part about the Sasha group, we over-index on senior people. So when I uh, came to the Sasha group, I mean, I took six VPs and SVPs over. Recognize the people that I took over, each one of them was running a portfolio of business bigger than the Sasha group. And I had a half a dozen. Wow. <laughs> and most were like, how are you going to make any money? And, you know, all these people making all this, you know, big salaries. And, but I knew what it was that we were trying to build. And, you know, the people that we were servicing wanted to hear from senior people on the other end, a consultancy by its nature. You know, Gary gave me the the creative liberty to take the cream of what I saw at KPMG or Goldman Sachs or Interbrand or Saatchi and pull kind of those things together to form what it was that the Sasha Group is and does for its clients. I'm a big believer in succession planning, you know, and you should have that, not feel threatened by it, you know. But if I were hit by a bus, uh, you know, one of those leaders is going to run this company. And that's important. And you got to be really comfortable in your own ability to uh, to do that. That's exactly right. The bosses that are worried about keeping people down are often insecure and worrying about it. But I know you, and I think the reason why people stay loyal to you and you build so much trust is that even at work, I know this from my daughter, you're just a genuine person. You're James, right? I mean, everybody knows you. If you have to tell everybody you're the boss, then you're probably not doing a good job, right? I mean, how do you build that loyalty with your employees? I tell people that I lead mostly because people choose to follow, not because I get on the desk and say, hey, I'm the COO or I'm the CEO and you need to listen to me. So that happens. I'm in touch with every boss I've ever had. Listen to that statement. Wow. I'm in touch with every boss I have ever had. And I left all the, you went through a line of companies. So obviously I resigned and left a lot of them, all of them. <laughs> but 
in my cell phone, I can call even the first guy who hired me out of college, Larry Jansen from KPMG, you know, because I left on great terms. And that's a lot of the advice I give to people, even when they're resigning or looking to resign. I'm like, yeah, I understand that the notice is two weeks. As Gary says, and I've really hung on to this, doing the right thing is always the right thing. That's what I tell my kids all the time. Right is always right. Wrong is always wrong. You you can't rationalize away from that. You know, and I could tell them from experience, I understand they want you over there. They will never want you more than the first day that they want. So just so you know that. So if you tell them that you, everybody wants you today, there's always the need today. And you need to tell them that you're going to start there next month. The good news is you're coming. The bad news is it's next month. Mm -hmm. And if they want you that bad, they're going to accept that. And I've done that time and time and time again. When I left Interbrand to go to Saatchi and I gave three months notice and you know, I left Saatchi to go to Cedo Mobile. I gave three months notice. You know, three months is a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of leaving and walking out the door. But it was the right thing. And they said, James, why are you doing this? I said, because you would want me to do it to you. Great answer. If it was different, you'd want the same thing. You know, I also think that giving to people or helping people, and this is why I get along so well, I think, with Gary, because he genuinely loves to help people, and as do I. Right. Even doing it, even when there's nothing in it for you, seemingly at that moment, there's no quid pro quo. Right. It's I happen to be in a position to help. Therefore, I am. You know, now, is there an expectation if I were to call you four months from now, you should be taking my call? Absolutely. But we don't do it with that notion of a favor bank, per se. That's a great answer. Two more questions, because I know you got to go. So one other question is what I teach communication skills, especially conflict resolution, et cetera. We talk about active listening. And I saw a quote that you wrote uh, somewhere, listen more than you speak. Just expand on that just briefly. When I went to VaynerMedia as the oldest guy in the building, I think at the time the average age was 26. I didn't really know anything about social media. Gary gave me great advice. He's like, I want you to just kind of breathe. I don't need you in every room making a decision or telling us how to do it. I want you to breathe my company. Just take a few months and take it all in. I learned a lot. You know what I mean? That, that's the other thing. Like, you're just not too old to learn. Mm-hmm. You have this wisdom and experience, yes, but I certainly became relevant in my kids' lives because all of a sudden I was telling them what's coming out next on Snapchat. You know what I mean? Before <laughs> they know it. You know, there's times to learn. So, I do listen more than I speak just so I can, uh, you know, help connect those dots that we talked about earlier. I, I just want to see how it comes together. And then I'd like to think that uh, my input is thoughtful. Speaking of the 26 year old average age or the millennial and generation Z, this leads me to my last question. And I asked Claude the same question. So they're a little different than we are, the millennials, generation Zs. Our kids are both. And most of those are a little, in my opinion, a little bit more impatient than we are. Some of them may be more used to texting than they are speaking and communication. At least when I'm training young physicians, I find out their communication skills are not what they should be. I asked Claude this question, what advice do you have to the young person who really wants to do more for the company, who wants to speak to their manager or someone higher up and say, hey, I'd like to do more. I'd like to move up. Not necessarily a raise, but, you know, I want to advance a little bit. What advice can you give them about that conversation? How should that go? Two things. One, I want to reverse it 
and speak to the people who are getting those requests and recognize my observations. I dispelled a lot of notions about the millennials, okay? I did not see them as lazy and self-centered. I mean, they're smart, they're inquisitive, they're collaborative, they're hungry. So why not harness that difference from our generation, right? Rather, mm-hmm. rather than stifle it. So one, embracing the differences and, you know, not to get off on a tangent, but certainly we as a country are not doing that really well. Like no. if you're not like me, <laughs> I hate you. Yes, uh, it's right. a really bad, bad problem, right? So embracing the differences. Two, we encourage an open door policy. You know, I probably spent more time with people putting 15 minutes on my calendar simply to try and figure out what it was that a chief integration officer did or what a chief operating officer was there to do. You know, and in most other companies, those senior levels are kept in a corner office and you don't get access to them. Okay. You mm-hmm. just, you just don't, you don't even go to the, when I was at Saatchi, most people didn't come to the 17th floor where I sat next to the chief executive officer, the chief creative officer, the chief strategy officer and me. Mm-hmm. And we had this glass off area and you didn't come there, wow. <laughs> you know, unless you were summoned to be there. Mm-hmm. Not here at VaynerMedia. I mean, they're like scheduling 15 minutes. Like, hey, I'm just here to introduce myself and find out what it is that you do, James. Mm-hmm. You know, what, are you, what are you here to do? So gathering that information is important. Recognizing, I, I asked them to do an SSP matrix, strength, skills, and passions. Okay, so it's a reflective mirror where you could look at yourself and you're going to tell me honestly what your strengths, skills, and passions are. And then I will tell you where that fits in our company as opposed to, okay, James, yeah, uh, I think I'm ready to be a creative today. And I said, um, aren't you in the, in the strategy department? And they said, yeah, yeah, but I, I'm ready to try being a creative. I said, well, like usually you're either born creative or, or, you know, you went to Miami school of design or something. You don't just kind of flip a switch and say, today's the day I become creative. Right. So mm-hmm. this is where using your strengths, skills and passions. If your strengths, skills and passions don't align with the, a creative director, I don't see a lot of hope for you finding your way there. Mm-hmm. So the SSP matrix has really opened the eyes to many of these younger people that say, Hey, you know what? I am passionate about that. And now, now I can find my way there because I have a skill in it and I'm getting stronger in that. Let's go with that. So now you're a young millennial. You want to talk to your boss. You look at your strength, your skills, your passion. You think you're in line and now you need to get up enough energy to go into your boss. And you say, how do you think that conversation should go as the boss? If you say, well, he or she did it really well. So in the SSP matrix, I don't just kind of leave them for themselves. I then help them position the conversation, right? So there's another form of advice. If you're one of these millennials, don't go, you know, boldly in where where no man has gone before, (laughs) you know, find yourself a mentor to help. You're going to flush this out now. You're going to be like, listen, I did my strengths, skills, and passions. And I think I can align nicely with that position over there that's open and can you help me maybe even role play? You look, your whole profession right now is on role playing, right? So mm-hmm. you know the importance of that and how much you could learn from that. Would you rhyme role playing if I, I know you're not the one I'm supposed to ask, but I'm going to run this by you in this way. And can you Q&A this with me? I do this with my wife too. I mean, you know, when, when she's uh, looking to do something at work, let her do a little role playing. 
and being honest. You know what? I don't see it. I don't see you haven't made a strong enough, compelling case for why this should be. Great. That's great advice to the young person. So, James, this was a lot of fun. And I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy, crazy schedule. But it's always fun talking to you. Can't wait for this to air because, you know, I promised my audience two things every single episode, and that's to inspire, which you certainly did because your career is inspiring and you gave a lot of advice about communicating both as a boss and as a young millennial who's trying to go to increase their career. And I just want to say thank you. I think my audience is in for a real treat when this airs. So thank you so much. Yeah, it was, it was great being on. I hope that they do find some value with it. You know, they can follow me or find a lot of what we talked about. I wrote about in Medium, whether it's the delegation stuff or how to work with millennials. It's all in James Orsini in Medium, I'm James Orsini on LinkedIn and Instagram. And I am at Jimmy the Pencil on Twitter. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the Jimmy the Pencil thing. That could be a story for another day. You remember, you actually remember me with the pencil thin Clark Gable mustache when I was 17, 18 years old. Oh, that's where that comes from. Okay. That combined with the fact that I started in accounting uh, leads to Jimmy the Pencil. Fantastic. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe. The podcast is now available on Apple, Spotify, Amazon now, and Google Podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with me, or find out more about the Orsini Way, you can go to theorsiniway.com and you can reach me through that. James, thank you again. It was an absolute pleasure and I will see you uh, hopefully soon. Hopefully in Florida. Yes, that would be great. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.